Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. morning church good to see you all today I uh, got a couple introductory comments and we'll dive right in first of all I want to express our gratitude and appreciation for the good people of Les Schwab Amphitheater who are so generously donating the use of this space to us this summer um, We are uh, so, so thankful and uh, really appreciative of the chance to be here. Um, Second, as we uh, prepare for the message this morning, I want to acknowledge Dr. Frank Thomas, the director of the African American Preaching Program at Christian Theological Seminary in Indianapolis, um, simply because Dr. Thomas's amazing work on this passage of scripture that we're in today uh, has inspired uh, much of my sermon. Um, And thirdly, The topic we're going to engage once again this morning is one of the most explosive and emotional issues in our current cultural moment, the issue of racial injustice. And we're not going to talk about this all the time every week, but we have to talk about it again today. And specifically, I'm going to be drawing an analogy between the story of Cain and Abel and the pervasive problem of violence against the African-American community. So, before going any further, let me say this as clearly as I can. The vast majority of police officers in our country are very high-quality people. Most law enforcement officers in our cities, counties, and states work very hard every day and do their very best to serve and protect all citizens regardless of race and color. We know that. So please know that when I talk about police violence or police brutality, I am definitely not saying that all individual police officers are guilty of these things, nor should be condemned for them. In fact, all the cops that I know personally are good guys, doing a hard job serving a lot of people with very little appreciation. Uh, Specifically, I would thank and name Aaron Wells and Bill Buck and Ryan Fraker, three current or former police officers in our church, guys who I know and love and respect who they are and what they do. So most police officers like these guys are good guys. But we know there's a problem still. And It's not just limited to law enforcement. Pretty much every profession has a potentially abusive element. I'm a pastor, for example, and everyone knows of the horrible systemic abuse of children prevalent not only within the Catholic Church, but other Christian denominations and churches as well. And the problem isn't just one one or two bad pastors or priests. It's entire systems and structures that allow for abuse and have covered it up in the name of protecting their institutions. So to me, it's not surprising that embedded within the Me Too movement several years ago was the Church Too movement. Thousands of stories, mostly from women and children, who experienced abuse at the hands of those 
to whom they had trusted the care of their souls. It's an abomination to God. Now again, obviously not all pastors or priests are abusers. But when it's that pervasive, there's something wrong at a systemic level. So all professions, including mine, have people who abuse the privilege of their position. And we can all think of teachers, coaches, lawyers, politicians, doctors, executives, and entertainers who have in one way or another abused their power or position to do harm to others. And so in that sense, the fact that there are some police officers who are prone to violence or racism or abuse of power is no different than any other field or profession. The difference is that when some police officers abuse their authority, people die. And the reality is that far too many African-American people are dying. And here's the thing, it's not just a handful of corrupt cops, just like with the church scandals, it's an entire system that is broken. And it's not just law enforcement, it's the legal system, the judicial system, the correction system, the prison system, that all play a part in one way or another of insulating some people, but not all people, from the consequences of their actions. And so to call out brokenness within the police system does not make you anti-cop any more than calling out brokenness in the education system makes you anti-teacher. In the past, I have caused confusion and even pain by being naive to the fact that these sorts of distinctions can't be assumed. And so today, I hope I've made myself clear as we move forward. As we come to God's word this morning, I want to invite you to come to Genesis 4 with a sense of seriousness. Even though Cain and Abel's a story that many of us first learned as kids in Sunday school, it's anything but cute. In fact, it's one of the most profound and enduring pieces of literature on the human condition ever written. And it's also one of the clearest and most compelling visions of the wisdom, compassion, and tender love of God in the entire scripture. And so I want to invite you this morning to dive in with me to Genesis chapter 4 as we continue to search for the whole gospel in the whole Bible. In Genesis 4, Cain murders his brother Abel. God pronounces a curse on Cain and banishes his, him from the land forever. I want to start at the end of the passage this morning in verse 13. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you're driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer of the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Whoever wrote Genesis is obviously a Steinbeck fan. Laquan McDonald was murdered in Chicago on October 20th, 2014. A 17-year-old African-American male was fatally shot 16 times 
by a white Chicago police officer named Jason Van Dyke. McDonald was reported to have been behaving erratically while walking down the street, and he was coming at Van Dyke with a three-inch blade knife, forcing the officer to fire shots. Initially, internal police reports described the incident in the same way and ruled the shooting justified. Van Dyke wasn't charged for McDonald's death. But 13 months later, at a judge's order, the police department released dash cam video of the shooting that showed that McDonald had in fact been walking away from the police officer when the first shots were fired. And as McDonald lay on the ground, Van Dyke fired 15 more shots into his body, expending the maximum capacity of his 9mm semi-automatic. The video showed that Van Dyke had been on the scene for less than 30 seconds before opening fire and had begun shooting approximately six seconds after exiting his car. The first responding officer said that he didn't see the need to use force and none of the other eight officers on the scene drew their weapons. And so on the day that the video footage was released, Officer Jason Van Dyke was charged with first-degree murder, and he turned himself in to authorities. It was the first time in almost 35 years that a Chicago police officer had been charged with first-degree murder for an on-duty fatality. That was October 2014. Fast forward to March 2017. Van Dyke is preparing to stand on trial on six counts of first-degree murder and 16 counts of aggravated battery with a firearm, one for every bullet he fired. Van Dyke's defense team asks the judge to reduce the charge to second-degree murder and to drop the 16 counts of battery, while prosecutors argue that he should be sentenced on the full original charges. The maximum for those convictions could be as high as 96 years in prison. And the defense asks the judge for 18 to 20. On the day that the judge pronounces the sentence, Van Dyke, who's 40 years old, arrives at the courthouse and addresses the crowd. He says that he prays daily for the soul of Laquan McDonald. And he says, I know that the McDonald family is suffering due to my actions. He says he opened fire because he was fearful for his life and that killing Laquan was the last thing that he ever wanted to do. He said, as a God-fearing man and as a father, I will live with this, haunted for the rest of my life. Also giving testimony before the judge are family and friends of both Laquan and Van Dyke. Edward Nance, an African-American man who'd been pulled over by Van Dyke several years prior, testifies that the officer had pulled him out of his car during a traffic stop, handcuffed him, slammed him against the vehicle twice, and threw him on the ground, injuring him so severely that he later required rotator cuff surgeries on both of his shoulders. And several other witnesses also come forward and reported similar abusive behavior by Officer Van Dyke. 
Jason Van Dyke's wife, Tiffany, testifies that her life has been a nightmare since McDonald's death. She says her husband is a kind and gentle man and describes him as her everything, her other half, her total heart. She says that he's an amazing human being, a great father to their two daughters and a wonderful husband, and that he is not in the least bit racist or hateful. She says her two young daughters can't eat or sleep. They're getting bullied at school by kids who tell them that their dad is a murderer. She says her family is fielding death threats and that they live in constant fear for their safety. They're afraid that if Jason Van Dyke goes to prison, he would be attacked and killed. When the judge asks Mrs. Van Dyke what she would say to the McDonald family, she says that she prays for them every day. She says that Laquan's death was a tragedy. She says she wishes both families could have peace. And she begs the judge for a lenient sentence, saying her husband already would never again work as a police officer and has paid the ultimate price, that their lives would forever be ruined. When Cain kills Abel. Our story begins with two brothers, the first two humans ever born into this world. And they each bring an offering to God. We don't know if these are simply praise offerings of worship and thanksgiving, or if God has already given them instructions for the kinds of offerings and sacrifices that they are to make. The author doesn't tell us. But we are told that Cain brings an offering of fruit that he grew, and Abel, his brother, brings an offering of meat that he raised. And they both offer their gifts to God. In verse 4, it says that the Lord looked, on, looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So we begin to ask questions of this text. Why did God look, on fa look with favor on Abel's offering, but not Cain's? There's all kinds of theories. Maybe God had already given them a clear sacrificial code and Abel followed it, but Cain didn't. Maybe it's that Abel brought meat from the firstborn of his flock, the first and the best of his harvest, and Cain just brought a pile of ugly, imperfect fruit. Maybe it's that, just like anyone, God has personal preferences, and he just prefers meat over fruit. Maybe he likes ribs more than cantaloupe. Who doesn't? Or maybe it has nothing to do with offerings and everything to do with the offerers. Maybe God's looking at the hearts of Cain and Abel, their sincerity, their motivation, and he sees that Abel's heart is pure and Cain's isn't. Uh, all of these theories are feasible and can be supported by the text uh, in one way or another, but the truth is that the author doesn't tell us explicitly or exactly why God receives Abel's offering and rejects Cain's. It just doesn't say. 
And so here's what I think. I don't know for sure. But I think that maybe the author is being intentionally ambiguous. I think he wants his readers to wrestle with the questions of the unknown. And it may be frustrating for us as readers who are trying to make sense of the story, but here's what I think is so brilliant about this, if it's true, that we aren't given any clear answers in this story for why things go well for one person and badly for another. And that is exactly how life goes for most of us most of the time. Why do some people suffer and others don't? Why do some people get cancer and others don't? Why do some people with cancer get better and others don't? Why are some people born into privilege and others aren't? These are, of course, the kinds of questions to which we rarely find answers in life. And it's frustrating, but it's also familiar. In the face of pain, loss, and suffering, we almost never figure out why. In the early days of the COVID pandemic back in March, when lots of people were questioning, why would God let something like this happen to us? The New Testament scholar N.T. Wright wrote an article for Time magazine and said, it's not part of the Christian vocation to be able to explain what's happening and why. In fact, it's part of the Christian vocation not to be able to explain. So I think the author of Genesis keeps God's favor on Abel, but not on Cain, intentionally mysterious. Because that's how so much of life is. So how does Cain respond to God's favoring Abel's offering over his? Moving on in verse 5, it says, So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then God reaches out to Cain in verse 6. Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Even though Abel's was favored, here's what happens. God continues to pursue Cain, warning him that if he's not careful, his jealousy and his bitterness were going to destroy him. God warns him that sin is crouching at his door, waiting to pounce like a predator. God says that Cain is still responsible for how he responds to life even when it gets hard and hard to explain. Cain is still responsible for how he responds to life. Which is actually very good news. Because it means that even in those moments where we feel like our lives may be unfavored, that we still have power, that we still have control, and we still have the agency to choose how we are going to respond. So our circumstances do not have to dictate our attitudes and actions. God says you still have that ability 
and that responsibility. And if you don't steward it well, if you aren't careful, then the sins of bitterness, resentment, anger, grief, whatever they may be, they're going to attack and destroy you. So how does Cain respond when things don't go well for him? Verse 8, Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him, or more literally, murdered him. So the first baby that's ever born on planet Earth grows up and murders the second baby who's ever born. So my first question is, when exactly were the good old days? We have murder on page four of the Bible, and we've been killing each other ever since. So this is significant in the storyline of the Bible because as we saw last week in the creation of Adam and Eve, humans have a special designation in the world, a special role to play. We are the one part of all of God's creation that he says is made in his image and likeness. And as we celebrated last week, this idea, the doctrine of the Imago Dei, the image of God, is the foundation of the Christian belief for the dignity and the sacredness of every single human life. As we said, black, white, young, old, male, female, born, unborn, able, disabled, documented, undocumented, sick, healthy, and everything in between, every single life is inherently valuable and deserves to be protected. And this is exactly why systemic racism and violence is not something that followers of Jesus can ignore. When one group of people is oppressed and discriminated against by another group for hundreds and hundreds of years, the Christian response can be nothing less than outrage, lament, and repentance for our ap apathy and our complicity. I know some of you are tired of talking about this. I'm getting tired of preaching about it. But imagine how tired our brothers and sisters of color are of living this. As we've said, white supremacy isn't an ideology. It's a historical fact. Meaning it would be ludicrous to claim that any other race or no race at all has been supreme in our nation's History. And this should not be surprising because we are the children of Cain. Violence is in our fallen nature as human beings. And we can grow numb or callous to these realities, but we cannot forget that when one human kills another, something has gone terribly wrong in the universe. This is a story in which all of humanity is a participant. Cain kills Abel. And how does God respond? Verse 9, 
Then the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? Cain, where's your brother? What have you done? What's this crime that you've committed? Did you think that I wouldn't see? Did you think that you could hide from me? Did you think that this would just be the end of it? Abel dies and then it's over? Did you think there would be no consequences for your sin? Notice that God continues to reach out to Cain, to continue to pursue him, to continue to chase after his heart. God continues to try to wake him up to see himself and to see the world as they really are. Cain, where is your brother? Cain says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? I'm not responsible for him. It's not my job to make sure he's okay. Why should I have to worry about him? My life is hard enough. I've got enough to worry about. He's not my responsibility. I don't know where he is. I don't care. Verse 10. The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And here we have one of the most profound statements in the entire Bible. The blood that spilled by violence against God's image cries out to him from the ground. Meaning that God cannot and will not ignore human violence and injustice. It cries out to him. And this will become a motif throughout the scriptures that God is unwilling to ignore the bloodshed of the innocent. He is unwilling to turn a deaf ear to the cry of the oppressed. And God says to Cain, listen! Don't you hear what I hear? Don't you see what I see? Don't you get it? Do you hear your brother's blood crying out? Doesn't your stomach turn? Doesn't your heart break over what you've done and what's happened to him? How do you not see this? How do you not care? Don't you care about your brother? Or in other words, when Cain asks God, am I my brother's keeper? God says, yes, you are. You are called to care about him. You are responsible for him. It is your job to make sure that he's okay. It isn't enough just to take care of yourself and worry about you and your family and your people. Your brother is your responsibility. You should know where he is. You should care. The blood of Abel cries out. God cannot and will not ignore human violence and injustice. And he calls us as those who bear the image of his son to listen to the cry of the oppressed as well. It's part of what it means to be human. And 
central to what it means to be Christian. So again, God asked Cain, did you think this was going to be the end of it? Abel dies, then it's all over. Do you think there would be no consequences to your sin? And God comes back in verse 10 and pronounces this curse upon Cain and banishes him from the land and from his presence forever. They're already outside of the garden and now he's cast even further east to the land of Nod. How does Cain respond in verse 13? Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you're driving me from the land and I'll be hidden from your presence. I'll be a restless wanderer on earth and whoever finds me will kill me. What's Cain doing? He's not claiming innocence. He's asking for leniency. He's asking for mercy. They're going to kill me, he says. They're going to harass my family. They're going to bully my kids, he says. And he's probably right. Somebody was probably going to go and kill Cain to avenge Abel. And then somebody else was going to go kill that person to avenge Cain. And then somebody else would probably go try to attack that person's family. And then someone else would attack that person's country. And on and on and on, human beings would inevitably find themselves in an endless cycle of violence. Dr. King said it like this, the ultimate weakness of violence is that it's a descending spiral begetting the very thing it seeks to destroy. Instead of diminishing evil, it multiplies it. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. The nature of violence is self-perpetuating. Cain knows it and asks God to have mercy and to be lenient. How do you think God is going to respond to this plea? We might expect God to say, you made your bed, now live in it. Sleep in it? (laughs) An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. He who lives by the sword will die by the sword. We might expect God to say something like that, but that's not what he says. In verse 15, the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So God doesn't let Cain off the hook. He doesn't sweep it over and say, oh, it's okay. But he does have mercy on Cain. And God puts this mark on Cain. Now, again, the author doesn't tell us what that mark is. I like to think it was a sweet tattoo. Some of us who grew up in white evangelical churches were taught that this mark was black skin. And not just like a cute little Sunday school lessons, entire denominations of Christianity in the southern United States used this belief that the mark of Cain was dark skin. They used this belief to justify 
slavery and segregation of African-American people. People really taught us that from the Bible. It was demonic. So we don't know what the mark is, but we do know what it's for. It's not just for Cain's personal protection. It's to put an end to the descending spiral of violence before it starts. It's not just God looking out for Cain. It's God looking out for his creation. Because God desires to end all human violence, but not by responding with violence. Or as Cleveland Brown said, the answer is never violence. Unless the question is, what's never the answer? As Dr. King went on, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. It's now January 18th, 2019 the day Jason Van Dyke will be sentenced for the murder of Laquan McDonald. The judge opens by saying, no one is going to leave here happy today. This case is a tragedy for both families, and no matter how I rule, everyone is going to lose. And then he issues his verdict. The judge is lenient. He sides with the defense. He dismisses the 16 counts of aggravated battery and drops the murder charge from first degree to second. So rather than potentially spending 96 years behind bars, Van Dyke is sentenced to six years and nine months in state prison. How do the families respond to the judge's lenient sentence? Well, the McDonald family, Laquan's family, is outraged and grieved. This man had murdered a child. Our son, our brother is gone forever. And all this guy gets is six years and nine months with good behavior. He could be out in three years for firing 16 bullets into our child. The McDonald's are furious and devastated. And the Van Dykes, they're ecstatic and overjoyed. In a press conference, they're celebrating, hugging each other, thanking God as they weep with joy. Their judge has been lenient, and their husband, their dad, won't be locked up forever. Maybe only three years. They still have a lifetime together to look forward to as a family. When God spares Cain, God was merciful to Cain. God was lenient. 
The murderer wasn't murdered. The one who showed no mercy was shown mercy. The one who didn't protect his brother was protected. He was judged, but he did not receive the full sentencing of what was due him. And if you're like me reading this story, I'm going, where is the justice in that? I get the logic in cutting off the cycle of violence, but it still doesn't seem fair that Cain gets to go on with his life. What about Abel? Abel's life is over. Cain is going to have a wife and children and grandchildren. Abel has none. Cain would go on, we'll see in the future verses, to build this great city, the first city. And he's going to leave this legacy behind. And Abel has none. There's part of me that really wants to see Cain pay. Maybe even to see Cain suffer. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And I think, to a certain extent, all of us want that for Cain. We want justice for those who do evil. We want that for Cain. Except for when Cain is our son, or our husband, or our brother. So where does that lead us? And ultimately, what is our hope in the midst of this mess? Well, our hope starts with the fact that Abel's blood continues to cry out from the ground, meaning God will not turn away from the cry of the oppressed. God will take care of Abel. We don't know how or where or when, but one day we believe by faith all acts of human violence and injustice and oppression will be dealt with once and for all. As Christians, this is our hope, that Christ will one day return to this world, that he hasn't abandoned this project or given up on humanity, but he is at work in it and he has plans for it to make it new again. One day there will be no more hatred or racism or greed or injustice or violence. One day there will be no more Laquan McDonald's or Tamir Rice's or Eric Garner's or Alton Sterling's or Philando Castile's or Breonna Taylor's or George Floyd's. One day God is going to reconcile all things through Christ. The world will be made new again. And the sins of racism, violence, supremacy, and injustice will be paid for in full. And as those who trust in Jesus, we long for that day. We long for that day when things will be made right, when God will take care of the ables of the world. We long for God's justice to come. Except for one thing. The good news is that God is going to deal with injustice. The bad news is that I'm unjust. <laughs> 
Sometimes I'm Cain. Sometimes I'm Abel. Sometimes I'm McDonald. Sometimes I'm a Van Dyke. When dealing with the wickedness, evil, and sin of the world, I want God, I want God to bring justice. But when dealing with the evil in me, I want God to show mercy. So how can we have it both ways? There's a story, a true story, a good story called the gospel. And it's a story that tells us that in the person of Jesus, in his life, death, and resurrection, God has come to us and shown himself to us. And what we see when we look at Jesus is a God who is both just and merciful. When we look at Jesus, we see a man who heard the cry of the oppressed. He gave his life to stand up for the marginalized, for the despised, for the poor and the disadvantaged. He spoke truth to power. He called out injustice. His message represented such a threat to the empire that the ruling class killed him. And it's in his death that the mercy and justice of God meet. See, we begin to see, and later authors of the scripture would point us in this direction, that Jesus is the ultimate Abel. The only truly good and completely innocent human. The only one whose life was the perfect offering to God. The only one who God ought to favor. And what happens to him? He's killed in a field, murdered on a cross. Hebrews 12 later would say, you have come to God, the judge of all, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and listen, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What he's saying is that all Human bloodshed cries out for justice, but the blood of Jesus cries out to God. And it's because of Christ that we now are able to find mercy for our souls and to fight for justice as those who seek Christ and his kingdom above all else. We join me in prayer. Lord Christ, you are the one in whom we place all hope.
It is easy to be overwhelmed, discouraged, confused, to feel hopeless, apathetic. In the face of all the evil, suffering, and violence that's present around the world, around the nation, here in our own city, and especially in our own hearts and lives. And so we come to you this morning, not as those who have it all figured out, not as those who would claim that our offering is acceptable because of how hard we've tried or how sincere we are, but we know that we stand before you in your presence this morning as those covered in the blood of your son. Even though we ourselves are complicit in the shedding of that blood, we are also the recipients of the forgiveness, the redemption, and the salvation that has been accomplished. And so, Lord, we praise and worship you as a God who is just and merciful. Convict us of our sin. Heal us of our brokenness. Invite us deeper into your very life that we may be part of who you are and what you are desiring to do in this city and around the world. We pledge our allegiance to Jesus and him alone. Amen.